Welcome to episode 50 of the March of History, a monumental milestone in the life of the March of History podcast. And I'm going to give my thoughts on that, and it's going to be well worth listening to at the end of the episode. So make sure you stay tuned after our discussion on Caesar and Britain ends, and I will tell you more about episode 50 and and what it's meant to, to get this far. But before we get into episode 50 today, let me just recap what happened in our previous episode, episode 49. After building a new fleet and taking care of some pesky Gallic tribes causing problems, Caesar then set sail for a second time to Britannia. But this time, he brought with him five legions and 2,000 cavalry. And after landing and building a camp in Britain along the coast, Caesar then took the majority of his army and marched inland to confront the British tribes that had gathered there to meet him. At first, things went well for Caesar and the Romans, and they were able to chase the British tribes out of their fortified location in a forest, but soon the pursuit of these tribes had to be called off due to some bad news Caesar had received from the coast. That bad news? Why, another storm had struck Caesar's fleet for a second year in a row, of course, and 40 of his ships had been dashed to pieces. After an enormous amount of work, Caesar and his army were able to repair many of the ships into a condition they found suitable, and so Caesar headed off to rejoin his army inland, but by the time he got there, Caesar learned that the British tribes had used the time of his absence to unite under the wartime leadership of one man, a man called Cassivellaunus. And that is where we pick up our episode today, episode 50 of the March of History, with Caesar marching his army toward the Thames and the homeland of the British tribe's new wartime leader, Cassivellaunus. But before we pick up with our narrative of Caesar and his army marching ever closer to the Thames, Let's take a moment to talk about the British tribes of the time and the land they lived on, or at least the way Caesar sees them, right? We had these accounts by Caesar of the British tribes, almost an ethnography of them and of the land itself, but this is all through the eyes of Caesar and through the eyes of the Romans, and I'm sure the British tribes, if they had left behind written writing, would have described themselves in in a very different way. In the Gallic War commentaries, Caesar goes into great detail about the island of Britannia and its people, and he gives a fascinating glimpse of the ancient people of Britain. But just about everything that he says about Britain and its people should be taken with a grain of salt. Many of the things that Caesar says in the commentaries about Britain and its people that we are able to verify nowadays are just downright wrong. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that Caesar was intentionally making things up and writing home to Rome and thinking, ah, who's going to know, right? (laughs) Because nobody in Rome knows really anything about Britain. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Caesar was just making it up and thinking nobody would know the difference. It may just be that the world of 54 BCE was far more mysterious back then, and the people of antiquity lacked the technologies and organizations that we have today to help us answer questions about geographies and about peoples. Also, keep in mind that Caesar really didn't spend all that much time in Britain, and most of his information about the people and geography of the island would have been either secondhand that he got from captives or from allies of the British people, or just guessed at. 
Now, with all of those caveats in mind, here are some of the more interesting things Caesar says about Britain and its people in the year 54 BCE. Caesar says the inland regions of Britain were inhabited by a people that Britons themselves claim were indigenous to the island. And he goes on to say that the coastal regions of Britain, on the other hand, were occupied by people from the region of modern-day Belgium, who had crossed over to Britain in search of booty and war, but had since settled down and become farmers on the coastal parts of Britain. And Caesar says that even in 54 BCE, the population density of Britain was high, and their buildings resembled the buildings that were used in Gaul. They're very similar to the buildings used in Gaul, and were extremely numerous as you traveled across Britain. Now, Caesar goes on to say that the people of Britain considered it wrong to eat hare, chicken, or goose. And instead, they keep these animals as pets. It's similar to how we would see it wrong to eat a dog or a cat, but we would keep them as pets. Apparently, according to Caesar, at least the ancient Britons thought the same of hares. I'm not saying hair on your head, like a hair like a rabbit. (laughs) Chickens or, or geese would also be kept by the Britons as pets and would not be eaten. As far as the geography, Caesar describes Britain as being triangular, which is roughly pretty accurate, and even mentions Ireland, which he calls Hibernia, as being to the west of Britain and being about half of Britain's size, which, again, is probably not so far off. He also mentions the island of Man between Ireland and Britain and calls it Mona. Caesar also mentions that there were other islands nearby where several writers have reported there being 30 days of darkness around the winter solstice on these islands. Now, Caesar mentions these reports from these other writers, but says that he was unable to confirm these reports himself. However, Caesar does say that the Romans brought a water clock with them, and using this they were able to measure the nights were shorter in Gaul than in Britain. Now, of all the peoples in Britain, Caesar mentions the people of modern Kent as being the most civilized by Roman standards and says that they lived much like Gauls. On the other hand, in the inland parts of Britain, Caesar says the people did not plant crops and instead lived on milk and meat and clothed themselves in animal skins. Now, this is one of those claims by Caesar where we can actually, using archaeology, show this to be false, that they did have agriculture in the inland parts of Britain well before Caesar's time. Now, Caesar goes on to say that the Britons painted themselves with woad, which was a plant that grew in Britain, and the leaves of this plant would produce a dark blue color, and the Britons would use this dark blue color to paint themselves blue and in doing so, make themselves look more fearsome in battle, Caesar says. And you can often see examples of this in movies where ancient British peoples fighting the Romans are depicted as having blue-painted faces, and Mel Gibson even steals something like this for Braveheart, but I don't think the people of William Wallace's time still painted their faces blue. I think that that was just taken from ancient British history, and is kind of, uh, I guess maybe you'd call it an anachronism, or just something wholesale made up by Hollywood. For William Wallace's period in in medieval Scotland, that is. It was true of the British tribespeople of Caesar's time. Now, as far as grooming habits, Caesar says that the men of Britain had long hair, yet shaved their whole bodies, except for their head and their upper lips. You can imagine a big bushy mustache and some long hair, and no other hair on the rest of their body. 
Now, finally, I have saved the most scandalous detail Caesar gives about the British people for last. Caesar says that groups of 10 to 12 men would share their wives in common, particularly between brothers, fathers, and sons, and that any offspring born of the wife was considered to be the child of the man who the woman was first brought to. So what exactly does this mean? I guess it means that the woman was either married, although Caesar doesn't say married, he just says brought to, uh, or, or maybe she's just given to the man as a gift, I'm not exactly sure. But even though this man shares her with his brothers and with his son, if she gets pregnant, the child is considered his, the original man that the woman, woman was given to. A very, very bizarre custom for our modern ears. And again, take it with a grain of salt because we don't know if Caesar is just trying to exotify these people for his Roman audience and whether he just took the most scandalous, wild detail that he heard from somebody who told him a rumor and made it fact in his commentaries. But it is interesting to read about. Now, that's enough of Caesar's reports on Britain and its people. I've left out a number of details that he includes that weren't as interesting so as to keep our narrative on track and keep us rolling. But as always, if you want to know more, go ahead and pick up yourself a copy of the Gallic War Commentaries. If you want to know a specific version, I use the Oxford World Classics translation by Carolyn Hammond. So you're welcome to pick that one up as well. Now, getting back to Caesar and his second expedition in Britain, once Caesar arrives back at the inland camp where he was headed to, where his troops are waiting for him, they begin to pursue the British tribes again. And as they march to find the British tribes, the Roman auxiliary cavalry continually get into skirmishes with the British cavalry and with the British chariots. And Caesar says that the auxiliaries from Gaul, remember they're always Gallic cavalry, show their superiority over the British forces time and time again, but on a number of occasions pursue too far the fleeing British tribesmen and too aggressively pursue them and then are then lured into traps and suffer from a number of casualties from these traps. So depending on how you read that, you know, Caesar says that the Gallic cavalry are superior to the British ones and keep defeating them in, in engagements and chasing them. But if the British cavalry are leading them into traps, it sounds like it was never a victory at all. It sounds like they were, the Gallic cavalry were never superior at all. It was just a pretend flight to lure them into traps. But these sorts of ambush victories encourage the British tribes, and so their leader, Cassivellaunus, soon plans a larger-scale attack on the Romans. One day when the Romans have reached the end of their march and they are busy building a fortified camp, the Britons spring their trap. They rush out of the woods nearby the camp and attack the guards on duty, and soon a fierce battle breaks out between the legionaries building the camp and the Britons that have sprung this ambush. Now, due to the legionaries being much heavier armed than the British troops, Caesar says that they were ill-equipped to fight the light and fast British army. When pressed, the British soldiers would often run and the Romans were hesitant to chase them because chasing them would break their close formation. And the Britons, rather than fighting in close formation themselves, would instead fight in small groups with large spaces between them. And when one group got tired, another group would come in and take its place and give them a breather. And the Roman infantry weren't the only ones having trouble. The auxiliary Gallic cavalry fighting alongside the Romans were having a hard time with the British chariots as well. 
These chariots, like the British infantry, would often run away when the Romans pressed them too hard. And when the Gallic cavalry pursued a short distance, the warrior on the chariot would then hop out of the chariot and face them, which Caesar said gave them an unfair advantage. Which is, it's a little bit confusing because we think of cavalry as being the type of force that could trample infantry. But Caesar makes a few comments like this throughout the Gallic commentaries. And I get the impression that perhaps at this point in history, cavalry is seen to have a disadvantage to infantry when fighting one-on-one. Caesar also says that the Britons' cavalry strategy put the Roman cavalry in equal danger, whether they pursued or retreated from them. Now, you may be wondering, where is Caesar during this whole battle? Well, it seems that Caesar was a short distance away from where the battle was happening, and he actually says that the battle took place in front of the camp and in sight of all. Now, why the whole army is standing around watching this battle rather than helping, I don't know. It's difficult to explain. Maybe Caesar just means the officers, but from future sentences that he says, it seems like the actual army is there and just watching. Because eventually Caesar decides the battle's not going well, and he does send in two additional cohorts to reinforce his battle troops. And these are not just any cohorts, but the primary cohorts of their respective legions. Even this doesn't stop the Britons, though, and at some point, one of Caesar's military tribunes is actually killed. Caesar is then forced to send in additional cohorts to reinforce his troops before the tide of the battle finally turns in the Romans' favor. And despite all of these reinforcements, Caesar says the Roman troops were frightened by the unfamiliar tactics of the Britons, and because of this, the Britons were able to break through the Roman midst and escape with very few casualties. So all in all, the Romans are able to drive off the British, but it is a poor battle for them. They don't really inflict any losses on the British troops. Caesar doesn't mention his losses, which probably means that he had some, right, and doesn't want to admit to it. It's not a good look for the Romans, and they may feel like in the end they drove off the British tribes, but the British tribes seem to have a hit-and-run technique for battles. So just because they ran away does not mean they were defeated. The next day after that battle, Caesar sends out his auxiliary cavalry to scout the area, and this cavalry soon spots the British army on some high ground a good distance away from the Roman camp. And these British troops begin to attack the Roman cavalry, but not with the same enthusiasm as the day before, Caesar says. They seem to lack some of their previous enthusiasm. So at this point, Caesar's probably thinking like, hey, yesterday... It wasn't great, but we did give them a bloody nose, so maybe they're not interested in fighting today, and maybe we can have a day off to go do some foraging. So at midday, Caesar sends out three legions and all of his cavalry, that's 1,700 cavalrymen, under the command of his legate Gaius Trebonius, and he sends them out in search of food. And the Britons, by this point, must have realized that it was a Roman army weakness that when they gathered food, they put down their weapons and scattered about and weren't in close, cohesive units. Because just like in Caesar's first expedition to Britain, the British tribes wait until the Romans, like I said, let their guard down and are busy gathering food and are spread out and don't have their weapons on them to spring an ambush again. Caesar says that the British cavalry and chariots attacked from all directions as the Romans were busy gathering food. But this time, the ambush doesn't work so well. The Romans are able to rally and to fight back and to drive the British troops away. 
and the Romans then pursue the Britons so closely that they give them no chance to rally or even to jump down from their chariots and fight on foot as they had in the past. In the end, Caesar says the Romans cut down a large number of the Britons, and apparently this was a significant blow to the British coalition, because after this, the British army, which had assembled, dispersed, and Caesar says that they were never at full strength after this again. After this, Caesar decides to go on the offensive. Remember, this coalition of Britons is being led by a man known as Cassivellaunus, and Cassivellaunus' tribe comes from an area north of the River Thames. So Caesar decides to take the fight to Cassivellaunus' homeland and marches his army to the River Thames to the only point that Caesar says it was crossable. Now, we don't know exactly where this point is, but historian Adrian Goldsworthy thinks that the crossing would have been somewhere in what is now central London. Of course, he's putting that in modern terms. In Caesar's day, there was no bustling central London. In fact, there probably wasn't even a city at all. It seems that London was founded by the Romans almost a hundred years later as Londinium. So to be clear, it is probably the modern site of what today is central London, where Caesar and his troops try to cross the, the River Thames, but there's likely no city there of any kind. Now, Caesar and his army are lined up along the Thames, ready to cross it, but it won't be easy. First, there's no bridge across the Thames. Now, I said that this is the only point that the Thames can be crossed, but that's not because there's a bridge, it's simply because it's the only part shallow enough for the Roman troops to walk across. But this doesn't mean ankle deep, the water is high, as high as the Romans' necks. And to make matters worse, a large force of Britons is waiting on the opposite bank to confront the Romans, and the Britons have even dug sharpened stakes into the riverbed so that some of these stakes are completely hidden underneath the river, ones that you can just walk into without knowing that they're there, and others are sticking partway out of the water that the Romans can see. But unintimidated by any of this, Caesar orders his cavalry to f cross the river first and for his legionaries to follow behind them. Caesar says that the Romans crossed with such speed that, despite the fact that only the infantry's heads were sticking out above the water, the Britons couldn't resist the assault and abandoned the riverbank and, as Caesar puts it, took to their heels. Now by this point, the British tribes have given up on fighting the Romans in pitched battles and are focusing instead entirely on hit-and-run raids. And Caesar says that Cassivellaunus had dismissed the main part of his army and that 4,000 chariots remained under his command. Though it should be said, this seems likely an inflated figure by Caesar. I've heard different things. I think Adrian Goldsworthy said it was just an inflated figure. The Gallic War Commentaries translation that I read said that maybe it's corruption. you got to remember, many of these things were written, or originally it was written by Caesar by hand, and then anytime they wanted to make a copy of the Gallic Commentaries, somebody else would have to copy it line by line by hand, right? So it's possible that it's a corruption that somebody wrote down the number wrong. Either way, Caesar keeps his army marching through Britannia toward the territory of Cassivellaunus. And as they march through Britain, they can see the British chariots a short ways off the road, hidden in the woods, yet watching and shadowing the Romans at all times. You can imagine it's kind of a spooky sight. You're marching with your fellow legionaries, and you can peer into the woods and see just a glimpse of a chariot in the shadows watching you wherever you go. 
Whichever direction the Romans would march, Cassivellaunus would force all of the people and livestock out of those areas and into the forest instead. And in doing this, Cassivellaunus was denying the Romans food and informants in addition to protecting his own people. Caesar says of all of this in the Gallic War commentaries, quote, Whenever our cavalry rushed into the fields, ranging too freely in search of plunder and devastation, he, meaning Cassivellaunus, sent his charioteers by every path and track out of the woods. The clash between them brought our cavalry into great danger. Thus, fear prevented them from ranging more widely. All that remained for Caesar was to forbid anyone straying too far from the column of legions, and to inflict as much harm upon the enemy by ravaging the fields and starting fires as the legionary soldiers could manage despite the exertion of the march. End quote. I get the feeling when I read this part of the story in Caesar's Gala commentaries that even he is feeling something ominous, something foreboding from this island as they march ever further and further away from their ships, surrounded by barbaric blue-painted Britons hidden in dark forests. These sorts of descriptions would have sent shivers down the spines of any Roman reading Caesar's accounts. But onward, the brave legionaries march. Now, Plutarch mentions a story of an individual legionary in Britain. And like many things with Plutarch, he doesn't give a clear chronology as to when this happens in Britain. He just says that it happens in Britain. Plutarch says, quote, Again, in Britain, when some of the foremost officers had accidentally got into a morass full of water, and there were assaulted by the enemy... A common soldier, while Caesar stood and looked on, threw himself into the midst of them, and after many signal demonstrations of his valor, rescued the officers and beat off the barbarians. He himself, in the end, took to the water, and with much difficulty, partly by swimming, partly by wading, passed it, but in the passage lost his shield. Caesar and his officers saw it and admired, and went to meet him with joy and acclamation. But the soldier, much dejected and in tears, threw himself down at Caesar's feet and begged his pardon for having let go his buckler. End quote. Plutarch lists this story to exemplify the courage Caesar's legionaries routinely displayed on his account and the devotion that they held towards Caesar. This legionary, even though he's done this brave deed and saved these officers in this swamp from an enemy ambush, pretty much single-handedly the way Plutarch describes it, and has to swim out of the swamp in a different direction. Caesar and his officers go to meet the guy and are, are very proud of him and admire him and, and give him a lot of praise. And the soldier, all he can do is fall at Caesar's feet and beg forgiveness for having lost his shield in the battle. That is the kind of devotion and strict discipline and code of honor these soldiers have when fighting for Caesar. And we should never forget that with every campaign, with every adventure, Caesar and his soldiers are forging a stronger and stronger bond. Now things may be looking ominous for the Romans. They may be marching deeper and deeper into the dark forests and swamps of Britain and getting hit by ambushes routinely. But at this point in our story, Caesar has a stroke of luck. Or maybe we should say that Caesar's luck strikes again. 
back when Caesar was in Gaul, a young man from Britain, a man named Mandubracius, had come to see Caesar and to ask for his support. Now, Mandubracius was a member of a British tribe called the Trinobantes, or Trinovantes. I've seen two different spellings of the same name, either with a B or a V. And this tribe of the Trinovantes lived north of the Thames in East Anglia. Now, this young man, this Mandubracius, wanted Caesar's support because his father, who had made himself king over his tribe, had been killed by an enemy tribal leader. And Mandubracius had then had to flee Britain to escape being killed himself along with his father. Now, you may be wondering, what does any of this have to do with Caesar in our story now? Well, I'll tell you, this enemy that had killed Mandubracius' father had been none other than Cassivellaunus, the man who is currently the wartime leader of the British coalition. So now we flash back to Caesar and Britain as they're marching ever deeper and suffering ambushes in these swamps and, and suffering a steady stream of casualties. Things are not looking particularly good for the Romans and for Caesar until suddenly the Trinovantes, the tribe of the young man Mandubracius, approach Caesar and surrender themselves to him. The Trinovantes then ask Caesar to send Mandubracius back to them so that he can lead them as their king. Caesar in turn demands 40 hostages from the tribe and demands food for his army, which the tribe duly supplies. And just like that, Caesar has his first real significant tribe that has come over to him as an ally in Britain, and they've brought food for his army as well. Now this defection of this tribe from the British coalition starts a movement. Remember, these British tribes are accustomed to being at constant warfare with each other. And it was only the external threat of the Romans and Caesar that had brought them together to any sort of loose agreement. Now that fragile coalition is beginning to fracture, and soon following the example of the Trinovantes, five additional small tribes also defect to Caesar's side. Now from these new allies, Caesar doesn't only get food, he also gets local intelligence. These tribes are able to tell Caesar where Cassivellaunus' stronghold is located. They tell him it's in a location surrounded by marshes and by woods, and it turns out it wasn't very far from Caesar's current location at all. So without missing a beat, Caesar marches his army toward this stronghold and duly assaults it. I'll let Caesar tell you about the assault in his own words. Caesar says, quote, Caesar made his way there with his legions and founded a place with admirable natural and man-made defenses. Nonetheless, he exerted himself to attack it on two sides. The enemy lingered a short while, but did not withstand the assault of our soldiers and burst out from another part of the stronghold. Large numbers of cattle were found there, and many of the enemy were caught as they fled and put to death. End quote. This was a devastating blow to Cassivellaunus' war efforts and to his prestige as commander as well. Now, around this same time as this assault on Cassivellaunus' stronghold is happening, in an attempt to defeat Caesar and the Romans on a different front, Cassivellaunus had sent messengers to Kent, near to where the Roman ships were beached. These messengers ordered the local allies to assemble all of their men and to attack the coastal Roman camp, guarding the ships, without warning. But when this force of Britons reached the Roman camp, the Romans, 
ready for them, sorted out and killed a large number of the Britons and captured their aristocratic leader who had led the assault. The force of the Romans that had sorted out did not receive a single casualty. It was another victory for the Romans against the Britons. Now with these back-to-back losses and with the defection of his allies and the fact that his own territory is now in ruins, according to Caesar at least, Casvalanus finally admits defeat. And through the Gallic leader Comius, Casvalanus sends envoys to Caesar to offer his surrender. By this time, at the time of the surrender, it's late September, and Caesar was anxious to get back to Gaul, so he orders hostages and accepts their surrender, but this time he makes sure to wait in Britain to collect those hostages. No more of heading off to Gaul and and saying, hey, yeah, send them to me in Gaul, because he's learned that does not work. Caesar also sets an annual tribute for the British tribes to pay to Rome and orders Cassivellaunus to do no harm to Mandubrachius and his tribe. After all this is complete, Caesar decides to set sail for Gaul, but because a large number of his ships were destroyed in the storm, as we talked about in last episode, and because Caesar now had a large number of recently taken slaves and, and hostages from Britain, he decided that there wasn't enough room for everyone to go on the voyage in one go. Instead, they would need to make two separate voyages to get back to Gaul. So Caesar sends off part of his army, part of the slaves, part of the hostages to Gaul while he waits with the rest of the people and the troops, the hostages and slaves that he has in Britain. But an issue soon arises. The weather is bad this time of year and very few of his ships that go to Gaul are able to return to Britain. That includes the 60 new vessels that Caesar's right-hand man in Gaul, Labienus, had made for him after the storm had hit. So Caesar waits a while for the vessels to arrive in Britain, but eventually realizes that they're not going to show and decides to risk the journey without them, just using whatever vessels that he does have. The weather is getting worse the further into fall they get, and Caesar is afraid of being stranded in Britain if they don't leave right away. So he packs his remaining troops and their remaining slaves and their remaining hostages into the vessels that he does have available to him and decides to set sail. Caesar's luck, as it does so often, again holds up, and at dawn the next day, his fleet arrives safely in Gaul and lets out some much-relieved and, you can imagine, much-cramped soldiers. In his second voyage to Britain, Caesar had been in Britain for nearly three months. He arrived in Britain in early July and stayed until late September. And yes, while there, he defeated some British tribes and imposed tribute, but this doesn't mean that he had conquered Britain. In fact, Caesar will never return to Britain at all. And it's assumed that the tribute that he ordered Cassivellaunus and the tribes to pay was either never paid or payment quickly lapsed as they realized the Romans weren't coming back. Despite all of this, ancient historian Tacitus gives Caesar credit for, quote, revealing Britain rather than actually passing it down, end quote. In other words, Caesar had put Britain on the Roman radar and had put it in their public consciousness, but did not actually pass it down to future generations of Romans as a province. In fact, Britain, or at least part of it, would not be conquered by the Romans for another roughly 100 years. 
This later conquest of Britain began in 43 AD, or or CE, take your pick of terms, when the Emperor Claudius sent one of his generals to invade and subdue the island. And this was not an easy or a quick process. It wouldn't be until 87 CE, long after the reign of Claudius, the conquest of the at least the southern half of Britain would be completed. And at no point was the entirety of the island ever made a Roman province. And the famous Hadrian's Wall would guard Rome's British province against attacks from beyond their frontiers, from what is today northern England and Scotland. Another note that's worth adding on that later invasion of Britain is that the general of the Emperor Claudius would have a terrible time getting his troops onto the ships. They were so terrified of the idea of going to Britain and leaving the limits of the known world, or or what they thought of as the known world. And that just goes to show the trust and loyalty that Caesar has already built up in his soldiers, who at his command go to Britain twice on his orders, as far as we know, without complaint and without any previous example from a Roman army to look to. Versus in Claudius's day, his troops had the example of two previous Roman armies or at least two previous voyages done by a Roman army in Caesar's day, only a hundred years before to look to. And still they balked at the idea of leaving the mainland and heading to Britain. Meanwhile, Caesar, with his charisma and his intense loyalty of his troops, is able to get his troops to get on the ships and go to Britain twice, no questions asked. But on building trust and loyalty in his army, Caesar is just getting started. Now, even in terms of wealth, which was often in the form of slaves, the expeditions of Britain were not a huge success. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy says, and he he quotes Cicero, a letter from Cicero to his friend Atticus, within this quote. He says, quote, Cicero noted the quick realization of Rome that campaigns in Britain were not going to yield the eagerly anticipated profits. There was no silver nor any hope of, and this is where he quotes Cicero, quote, booty except for slaves, but I doubt we'll find any scribes or musicians amongst them, end quote. And this is where Goldsworthy continues. In other words, those likely to fetch a high price. But of course, as we've said in previous episodes, none of this mattered too much to Caesar. The invasions of Britain were always meant for his audience in Rome, not to bring back treasure. I mean, it would have been a bonus had he found any grand grand treasure there, but he didn't. But that wasn't their purpose. Their purpose was to remind the Romans that Caesar existed and that he was still as flamboyant and interesting as ever. And in this respect, these voyages worked brilliantly. Everyone at the time was obsessed with these expeditions. Even Cicero, despite his snide remark about the poor quality of slaves expected from Britain, nevertheless eagerly awaited news from his brother Quintus, who was on staff with Caesar in Britain, was on the expedition with Caesar. So Caesar may not have accomplished much in Britain in his two voyages, but he certainly accomplished a lot in Rome in terms of propaganda. And speaking of Rome, events in the capital have not been standing still and waiting for Caesar. Much has changed since he has been gone, and some of these events will blindside Caesar on a personal level on his return to Gaul. But that is a story for our next episode of the March of History. But don't go yet. I have a few thoughts I'd like to give on episode 50, or or I should rather say the journey it's taking to get to episode 50 of the March of History. 
there was a time when the March of History was nothing but a pipe dream. I remember the day I had the idea to do the March of History podcast. I was living in Columbus, Ohio at the time. I was working 70 to 80 hour weeks in banking, an occupation, to be quite honest, I did not enjoy. I was doing all this to pay off a mountain of student loans I had from going out of state for undergrad. And I remember driving into work on a Sunday to work eight hours after having worked half a day on Saturday and 13 to 14 hours Monday through Friday and done the same the week before that, the week before that, and the week before that. And just thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way to live my life, at least after I paid off my student loans. That doesn't require me to do a job that I don't enjoy, that is a lifestyle I am more passionate about, that is something that makes me excited to wake up in the morning. And so on this drive into work on that Sunday, I began to just rack my brain. You know, what would I enjoy doing? What would I really have fun doing? And I realized that I had spent a ton of time working on Excel spreadsheets, and the way I would keep my brain entertained while doing that was to listen to history podcasts. And suddenly it hit me that I am always listening to these history podcasters telling tales of the past, researching history, sharing it with the world, and there's no reason I couldn't do that myself. Now the banker in me immediately hit back and said, well, there's no way to make money. You couldn't make money doing that. (laughs) And I thought, well, these other people who have history podcasts are finding a way. Does it pay a banker's salary? Almost certainly not. But can it be a livable wage? Why not, right? And I still had the doubts in my head on this drive. I'm mulling it over. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I challenged myself. I said, are you telling me that if you plop Julius Caesar into your life position right now and told him you need to find a way to make a living doing history podcasting, that that man wouldn't find a way? And you know, I mulled that over my brain for a while. You could tell how, much, how big into history I am that that's the way I think. And I realized that, no, there's definitely that that man would certainly find a way to make not just a living, but a great living doing what he loved if that was the stated goal of his life. And so by the time I got to my office in Columbus or just north of Columbus, I was determined to do this and, and to launch my own history podcast. Now, it wouldn't happen for another three years. That was 2017 when I first had that idea. And it took three more years to pay off my student loans, to save up some money, and also, let's be honest, to get the courage to launch the podcast. Because it takes a lot of social courage to record your voice and put it out there to the world. You, know, you get all sorts of unsolicited feedback when you do that, right? And everybody, or just about everybody, hates the sound of their own voice, and I can promise you I'm no different. But the main barrier was paying off the student loans, and you know, I needed a job where I wasn't working 70 to 80 hours a week to even think about focusing on a history podcast. And I remember during that time, and, and even before then, there were times I would lay awake at night just thinking, There's just no way, given the little amount I make and how much I have in student loans and how much the cost of living is, that I will ever pay off these student loans, never mind launch this podcast. It just seems like a pipe dream. It seems impossible. But despite all of these doubts, I kept on pushing, kept on working towards it, 
And then finally, in, in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, I quit my banking job. I had already launched the podcast by that time, and I was ready to focus more on the podcast and to take that leap of faith. And I also went after a, a second kind of life dream of mine. I wanted to travel the world. I, I had spent many, many weeks and, and years working 70 to 80 hour weeks in a cubicle, sometimes with no windows at all and no social contact. And I remember just, I had somebody with a wanderlust who wants to travel and just thinking that it was no way to live life, living 70 to 80 hours in a cubicle. And then you drive home through traffic and then you're home. And you know, how much time do you really have? You watch a quick TV show on Netflix and then you go to bed and then you do the whole thing the next day. So I, after quitting my job, went to Spain to teach English there. And just a, a quick digression, I should say, I really didn't know the people of Spain before going there. But having lived amongst them for two years and having taught their children, I can say that never in my life have I met a more warm-hearted and a more welcoming people than Spaniards. They, you know, I was invited to weddings. I was invited to people's grandmother's home for family dinner on Sunday night and, you know, welcome to stay over and stay the next day. I just cannot imagine a more welcoming, a more hospitable people that made me feel so at home in their country. So just a, a quick aside, and, and I'll make a future YouTube video on this, but thank you so much to, to all the Spaniards that made me feel welcome in their country. But during those two years, I also got the grand privilege of traveling Europe and getting to see many of those historical locations I had read so much about and being able to see them with my own eyes makes it so different. And I was able to record a lot of those for Instagram to share with you guys and to tell you about the locations. And I recorded a heck of a lot more of it for YouTube. I have about a terabyte of data that soon I will get around to putting out more regular YouTube videos. Right now, I'm actually working on the video for the Battle of Elysia, which is Caesar's kind of crowning jewel of a battle in the Gallic Wars, if you can call a battle a crowning jewel. It's really a horrible thing, right? But still, that was Caesar, in terms of war, his crowning achievement. And so I went there, and uh, that's the video I'm working on now. But I have about a terabyte of other activities and they're not all battlefields you know like the spanish wedding i went to i filmed a lot of it different festivals around europe so i'm going to be sharing a lot of that with you but with all of this what i'm getting at is that in the past two years life has been a wild and grand adventure and the reason i bring all this up is not to brag not to say that my life's perfect because it's not it is far from it the reason I bring all this up is because you probably have dreams and aspirations of your own. You probably have things that you would like to accomplish that, like me, maybe you lay awake at night thinking, oh, that'll never happen. That, that can never be accomplished. It's just too difficult, too much work, too unlikely, or you know, afraid of what other people will think. They may laugh. They may you know, scoff at your efforts. All I can say for that, you know, all my advice to you would be is there are enough people out in the world trying to tell you no, trying to tell you that you can't do it, trying to tell you that you aren't good enough. You don't need to tell yourself the same thing. You don't need to put yourself down. In other words, you should do nothing for yourself but believe and encourage yourself because I promise you the world out there will not always believe and will not always encourage. So you don't need to do their job for them, right? I mean... 
I'm not trying to be too negative here. There are lots of people who are encouraging in the world, lots of people who will help support you in your dreams and goals. But in general, it's a long and hard journey to achieve any dream. And the only way you can get there is by being positive, by believing and encouraging yourself and not being too hard on yourself. But anyway, that is enough of me preaching and of me reminiscing. I'm sure a lot, a lot of my audience is twice my age or, or at least older than me and has more life experience, so I won't go on for too much longer. Just wanted to share those thoughts with you and to say that if you have a dream, if you have a passion, if you have some sort of aspiration, however grand or small it is and however likely or unlikely it is, I think that with the correct amount of work and planning and effort and belief, you can and should do it. That's it for me. I will talk to you on the next episode of The March of History.